Hello and welcome to Ferris Ford. I'm your host, Dave Eisler. On today's program, I'm delighted to, to welcome two authors of a recent book at Ferris State University. Dr. David Pogram, Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion. David, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you. And Franklin Hughes, who's the Multimedia Specialist for the Diversity and Inclusion Office and the Jim Crow Museum. Franklin, good to have you also. Thank you, thank you for having us. And the book you've written is entitled Haste to Rise. And it's the story of, of Mr. Ferris and some of the work he did here. And so would you give our, our listeners an introduction to your book? Frank, do you want to start us? Uh, sure, I guess I can. Um, so yeah, the book just chronicles a, a, a little known story at the time, um, or a little known story that we discovered that Mr. Ferris had a relationship with um, the Hampton Institute in Hampton, Virginia, which was uh, pretty much a predominantly all black, you know, all black college, all black institute. And a lot of the students came from the Hampton Institute to Ferris to get some college preparatory uh, education so they could go on to other universities. And um, one of the interesting things about it is that was a rare relationship, I would, I would say, in the United States at that time. And the, the effects that, that, or the impact that these men had after they attended Ferris and the rest of their lives really had an impact on, on the United States and civil rights and in, in all kinds of professional fields. And it's a story of African-American achievement and African-Americans um, uh, achieving despite resistance, but also achieving with um, opportunities and assistance from the Ferris Institute. So David, how did this book, how did this project get started? How did this begin? Yeah, so I wanted to uh, sort of diversify Ferris's uh, um, the imagery around campus, the, the art. And I said to Franklin one day, can you go and find uh, a picture of Gideon Smith? Uh, we thought at the time, like most people, that Gideon Smith was the first African-American to attend Ferris Institute. And what Franklin discovered was that there were others. And um, as we began to do research, we actually found four uh, African-Americans before Gideon Smith. Uh, but the bigger story for us was this relationship between Hampton Institute and between Ferris Institute. And so you began looking for the first African-American student at Ferris. When did you realize that the, the, the breadth and the depth of the information you were uncovering would be a possible book project? Well, we did a presentation on campus. Uh, Franklin, I don't know. I think that was about two years ago. Uh, and, you know, we had a nice turnout and we introduced at that time six of the uh, Hampton students who had come to Ferris and become Ferris Institute students. Among them, Belfort Lawson, the first African-American to argue uh, and win a case before the United States Supreme Court. And that's like my favorite. I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but that's my favorite of these guys. And also Percival Prattis, who in 1947 became the first African-American to be admitted to the press corps. And so we were excited about those two individuals and four others. And we shared, we, we, I don't know if you guys remember, we had these big banners done and we shared their stories and some stories from others. And one of the things I remember 
coming out of that experience is, is uh, we need to document this in a way that's permanent. And there were several people there that suggested a book project. And I will tell you, this, this was truly a labor of love with the emphasis on the word labor because we spent so many weekends, late, late hours searching magazines, newspapers, old brochures. Uh, we actually were able to track down some of the children and grandchildren of, of some of the, the people that came to fairs. And so we felt like detectives. And it just seemed at a certain point that, that the result should be a book. Well, I can, I can remember that presentation. I think it was probably for Founders Day, as I recall. Yeah. And remember the excitement that, that these extraordinary individuals uh, that literally we had, we had never heard of. Mm -hmm. And I also remember as you and Franklin were working on this, the excitement where you would uncover someone and there'd be this whole piece of history that would, that would evolve. And you know, I found your book engaging, it was, I really found it very difficult to put down. These stories just reach out and grab you. Would, would you be willing to share a story or two from the book? Someone who, who's a favorite or someone who people wouldn't know? Your choice. Well, there was, um, there was an interesting story that, that, that we talk about a little bit in the book. We talk about, um, we mentioned a man named James uh, Swernington Smith and James, or John Swernington Smith and James Duncan. And they were both on the basketball team. There's a picture in the Ferris, um, the, the Ferris yearbook in 1914, where these two gentlemen are on the basketball team, which in and in, in of itself is rare to have in 1914 to have African-Americans on a basketball team at a predominantly white institution. I mean, for, for the most places in the country, um, I actually did some research a little bit and there was only a documented at, at universities, only like 19 um, uh, blacks, black men who played basketball at white institutions. So here at Ferris in 1914, we had an interracial um, uh, team, a basketball team, which which was really significant. But one of the, the, the interesting stories that's not, it's kind of in the book, but, uh, but it had more life as we did research or as I did research. So John Smith in his later career um, became like the, 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 he ran the Pleasant Grove Cemetery in, in Virginia. I think it was in Norfolk. And it was one of the first um, quote unquote colored cemeteries, public colored, colored cemeteries in that area. And he, he ran the cemetery. And, you know, of course, you know, during Jim Crow, you have segregated, segregated everything. So even segregated cemeteries. Um, well, when I was doing research, I went down to the area. Um, I was in Hampton in the area and in Norfolk. And we went, me and my wife went to the cemetery to see it. And, you know, even today, the cemetery is, is, the grass is kind of brown and, and some of the weeds are overgrown and, and not all the graves are, are really taken care of all that well. And along the side in, of the graveyard are these big bushes and these big trees. Well, on the other side of the trees and the bushes is the white cemetery. And so even to, and, and that cemetery is manicured, the grass is green, the weeds are cut and, and all the, it, it's, it's a really splendid um, cemetery. And so even today, the, the impact 
of, of Jim Crow and, and how African-Americans were treated in this country is still um, evident. And because, and then I think about these stories that, that we discovered, how many amazing stories of people um, that had lived are buried in that cemetery and their stories aren't taught, their stories aren't, aren't researched or, or spoken about. So it, this, the research of this book kind of just, just drove that home. It, it was an impact to see it and to actually um, you know, see a situation like that. Well, for me, Dave, I, 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 I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Chester E. Bush, who's actually predated the Hampton people, but Franklin and I um, went down to Little Rock, Arkansas to speak to the, I think he's the grandson of, of John Bush, or that's right. I get the, they, they alternate the Johns and the Chesters in the generations and it's easy to get them mixed up. But it was such a great experience to talk to someone and to actually educate him about his father who had been here, you know, in the very early 1900s. So that's, that was a good, uh, in, in just in terms of linking the, the, the present with the past, that was good. But, but I want to say the a big part of this story for both of us is what we discovered about our founder and the, the, the life that he not only talked about, but, but he lived. And I think about B.B. King uh, in his song where he says, I want to live the life that I sing about in my song. Mr. Ferris lived the life that he preached about in his lectures. And, uh, and, and we have, we tried to document, we didn't document them all, but we documented many instances of, of how he really did work to create uh, an institute that, uh, that was open, and not only open to students, but where he took these students and many others under his wing, where he helped with their money, he helped with their schooling, he availed his home's private library, he wrote letters of recommendation. He used his influence to help them become successful. Dave, for me, I'm almost embarrassed to say that I spent many, many years at Ferris and didn't know any of that about our founder. But the beautiful part is because of, because of your research, now we do know. Yeah. We do know. And, and I would add real quick. Um, ahead, I'm sorry. No, I would just was add it real quick that I, I would think Maslink um, what was goes along with that too, because uh, Maslin had a Mr. Maslin had a big impact. I mean, he was really the one who corresponded directly to Hampton. When I went down to Hampton, I looked at a lot of the correspondence that they had in their records, and Mr. Maslin, almost to a person, when when Hampton would check in on their people, he would respond and he would give a a, a personal update almost to a person. So you, you could tell that he was invested in the success and not just the success of the institution, but the success of the individual. And so this book goes beyond just the relationship with Hampton, but I think that relationship that, that Mr. Ferris established with Hampton was really significant. Would, would you share a bit of that with our, with our listeners? Yeah, I, I'll start by saying, um, we, don't, we, don't, we could not discover or did not discover a formal uh, arrangement uh, and I, I, I believe that we have, we have hypotheses, Dave, uh, that uh, some of this was driven by uh, Mr. Ferris's relationship, Woodbridge Ferris's relationship with Booker T. Washington. Uh, 
we, we know that Washington was a, a, uh, a graduate of Hampton, uh, founded an institution much like Hampton, Tuskegee Institute, and that uh, uh, Woodbridge Ferris saw him as a prince among educators, to, to use his, his, his words, uh, that they spoke sometimes at the same conferences, and that Booker T. Washington was invited to Ferris, uh, came to Ferris Institute, over 800 people came out to, 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 to hear him. And this was just before, or, or a few years before that, the, the first of those students started coming. Uh, so I, I think it makes some sense. Uh, we, we also, by the way, I should say that the last um, public address we believe that, that that Woodbridge Ferris, Mr. Ferris gave was actually at Hampton Institute, where he went down to Hampton the last year of his life. And uh, it was just, apparently that, Franklin, that was the first time he'd ever been down there because he was just blown away, thrilled at the, the, the buildings, which by the way, the students at Hampton built the buildings where they attended school. And he just saw this marvelous school and he raved about it. And it was, I think, Franklin, I think it was like a, a month or so later that, uh, that Mr. Ferris passed away. So I wish, Dave, I wish we had uh, been able to uncover a formal arrangement. Uh, we know there was an arrangement, as, as Franklin says, you know, with uh, Massling uh, working with the registrar down there, sending information back and forth. Uh, but we could not find a formal agreement. But it is a great story. And as part of our university's continuing commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, Haste to Rise has been adopted as a, a part of a project that's entitled One Community, One Book. And so uh, our universe, members of our university community are reading this book this year. Do you have any advice to readers? Not all of us get the to talk with authors. What, what <laughs> advice would you have to someone uh, reading your book? Frank, do you want to go first on that? Uh, yeah, just real quick. I, I, one of the things I, I would suggest is to, to read the footnotes and check the footnotes out. Um, I guess if, if I'm going to say of anything I'm disappointed with in the book is that the footnotes are not on each page. Um, because I think it would have been a lot easier if a person could look, glance down and see the footnote because there's a lot of other information that we didn't um, necessarily explore in, in the book. So there's, there's a lot of information in the footnotes. And I believe uh, uh, Pyram has developed some, uh, some, some, what is it, worksheet or, 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 or work questions that go along with the book within that, uh, within that community uh, the one community, one book. So there's some discussion questions also that uh, the international office can put people in contact with. So what I would, and I'm sure Franklin and I are on the same page, uh, forgive the pun, uh, with this. This is a book about, about realized opportunity uh, at a time in America when, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about the Jim Crow period. The, these guys were all born uh, during the Jim Crow period uh, and, li and lived their lives, and many of them died. I would say most of them died during the period. Uh, they came north. They, they came to a place uh, where, for the most part, they were welcome, and certainly welcome at the Institute. And, uh, and because of the opportunity that they received, they 
helped change this country, and that's not hyperbole when we say this. They were active uh, uh, members of, of, of the movement to change this country. I think the lesson for us today is, is that when we give opportunity to people, we not only change their lives, but we create a situation where they can change the whole country. Well said. So if I'm listening today and I want to get a copy of the book, how, how can I do that? Well, you can, uh, we actually have copies in the Jim Crow Museum, uh, but you could order from the publisher, PM Press, or you could order from Amazon. Well, I want to, I want to thank you, Franklin and David, for joining me today. Wonderful guests. I hope you'll come back and visit with me again. Thank you. Thank you. And I encourage our, our listeners to, to pick up Haste to Rise. It's a, it's a great addition to the history of Ferris State University, and it truly is the story of opportunity in the early years of Ferris State University. Thank you for listening to Ferris Forward. I'm your host, Dave Eisler. Our guests today have been Dr. David Pilgrim, Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion, and the founder of the Jim Crow Museum on the Ferris State University campus. And Franklin Hughes is a multimedia specialist for the Diversity Inclusion Office in the Jim Crow Museum. Thanks so much for listening. Do enjoy the book. Bye for now.